Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here once again with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Welcome back, Andy. Bienvenue. Um, you're back from uh, Paris, uh, yeah. where you were doing some Everscholar stuff. I'm back from Chicago and uh, Florida. Yes, it was, it was quite a week, and uh, to our, uh, our listeners that also are viewers in the sense that they view our website and look for the show notes, have to apologize for the absence of show notes last week, mm-hmm. and that was the one concession I made to uh, being in Europe. But they'll be yes, back because you were week. eating croissant and, and doing other and, no, I was and actually, doing other fun stuff. Yes, I was, but I was working at the same time. <laughs> so and, you say? Well, look, people do work in Paris, and they also <laughs> eat croissant. So, nevertheless, okay. okay. And uh, and of course, as you know, uh, America's Constitution is sponsored by uh, Ever Scholar. Now, some of our uh, listeners this week uh, may not have heard of Ever Scholar. I'm not going to get into it right now, but the, uh, only to say that uh, because of the controversial nature of the subjects that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks and the fact that the American public is focused on this, and because of Professor Mars' prominence and the fact that he has appeared in a variety of, uh, of media and, and forums, uh, a lot of people have listened to our podcast over the last few weeks. So welcome to America's Constitution. New listeners, welcome back. Old listeners, and welcome along, those of you who have been with us uh, from the beginning. Um, and because there's a bunch of, of new listeners, I just want to say a couple of things about uh, the podcast itself. As you know, we can be found in a variety of places. So some, some of you may have found us through uh, Podbean, which is our podcast hoster, um, and I say that because there was an article on the Volok Conspiracy uh, blog which linked to our podcast, and it linked through the Podbean uh, link. Um, so that is fi- a fine place to find us, but you might enjoy it more going to akilamar.com and finding the podcast there, because most weeks you'll find the show notes, which have typically very interesting uh, law review articles or opinions or uh, journalistic articles or videos or even music, so uh, an art we've had up there. So there's uh, there's quite quite a lot of resources there. Or you may find it more convenient to subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc. So just uh, Stitcher, whatever that yeah, is, Stitcher and iHeartRadio, Pandora, we're everywhere. Um, but speaking of, we're everywhere. Not as much as Akil has been everywhere. So over the last uh, couple of weeks, um, first of all, you've been on other podcasts. Uh, here's a shout out to uh, Barry Weiss, who conducted a, a great interview uh, with you um, on on her podcast, Honestly, uh, with with Barry Weiss. Um, and just two two quick things about that, and 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 welcome aboard, uh, listeners who are um, uh, coming to us maybe because of of, of Barry's piece. Um, Andy and I met Barry exactly a year ago this month, actually, when at, at a book launch a, event, um, May 3rd and 4th uh, last year, um, down in Georgia, uh, sponsored by the AEI. It was the event at which Lynn Cheney actually kind of announced to the world that she was breaking with Trump. It was uh, uh, an event that she did with Paul Ryan, and, and Andy and I were in the room, and so was Barry Weiss. And uh, that's where we met her. And so thanks, Barry, very much um, for the invitation to be on uh, your show and to be introduced to your audience. So that was one thing, and it's and Andy was again a, a part of all that because um, uh, a year ago he 
Um, uh, Andy and I did a, the, the, the Blues Brothers road trip uh, down to Georgia and, and back. Um, our, on our way back, we, we stopped in and saw uh, Bob Woodward and Elsa Walsh, his spouse, um, and, and that was fun um, as well. But I also mentioned the Barry Weiss uh, podcast because Barry has very kindly agreed to be a guest on our podcast, America's Constitution, at some uh, future date. So we kind of agreed um, that it would be a home and home, so to speak. Right. And in the last week, you also appeared uh, on, at the President's Council event at the National Constitution Center, another great event. And uh, at that event, uh, you worked with uh, Jamel Bowie and George Will, uh, Larry Kramer, Sandy Levinson, Doug DeVos, and many others. Jeff Rosen, of course. Jeff is the president of the National Constitution Center, so he organized the whole thing. We, we shouldn't omit Jeb Bush mm-hmm. um, from, from that list of luminaries. So the reason that I that I listed them was because I want to make clear to our listeners that Professor Mark comes on here and he'll say, well, I'm a liberal who uh, is an originalist, and I'm, or I'm a liberal that does this. The point is that by, by, by talking with uh, people on both sides of the aisle, uh, that doesn't make one on the left or on the right. I mean, there's an old saying that you don't negotiate with your friends. Um, so I, I think that some people might mistake you know, all of the different appearances that you make for an alliance with a particular point of view. And that's why, in particular, I list these, these uh, participants. And, uh, and what's so interesting, Andy, about that is if you really want to understand where someone's coming from, you have to listen to them and, 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 and hear them. And, so it's, and it's a huge advantage to know how the other side of an issue thinks. Maybe you'll be persuaded and, and they'll win you over to their side, but, but, but maybe actually y- you, you won't be won over, but you'll understand maybe how you could win them over to your side because you really are hearing what they're saying and not saying and, and you're not mischaracterizing them or uh, just coming up with a, a straw man argument that's a caricature of their true position. And just as we said, we, you and I, a year ago, went to this um, event. It was sponsored by a conservative organization, the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. Um, and it's a generally conservative organization, but they were um, uh, very interested in hearing what we had to say. And at that event... A consummate conservative, Lynn Cheney, broke with Donald Trump very decisively. Um, uh, Paul Ryan was there, too. And that was very interesting to, to, to be there, to, to observe all of that. And um, by the way, you know, you know, one of their guests at that event was Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor for President Biden. So it's not, it's not like, you know, so, so we're, you, it's not like you were the, the token, uh, you know, liberal there, for, for example. Um, okay. And then... Along these same lines, you know, I think that this is a, a theme of yours. In a way, this is sort of your brand. I mean, if you look at your, your biography that, that you produce yourself in part, um, it makes a point of things like you've been called to testify before Congress by both parties or you've been cited by the Supreme Court uh, from both the liberal and conservative wings, you know, on many occasions. Um, last week, you uh, ran very notably the uh, you you were uh, wrote the Saturday essay uh, for the Wall Street Journal, which is you know, the kind of the cover story for their magazine, the equivalent for for New York Times readers of having the cover story on the New York Times magazine on a Sunday. So this was on Saturday, and uh, and 
not because you are, you know, sort of a, a hardcore Wall Street Journal type writer, but rather um, because they felt that you had something worthwhile to say. And I said some uh, generous and positive things about Sam Alito's op- draft opinion and our podcast uh, audience from last two weeks um, know about all of that. But I also uploaded a, a, yet an, a new version, Vic and I, my brother Vic Amar, who's been on the podcast um, before on multiple occasions and, and recently, of a forthcoming article um, that's harshly, harshly critical of opinions authored by Sam Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch on a theory called um, the Independent State Legislature Theory, which sounds very technical, and we're going to do additional episodes on it later on. Maybe we'll have Vic back on the show. But this could be the way in which the election of 2024 is slash stolen from one uh, by the by the Republicans, um, or you know, or um, lost before it begins um, uh, from a different point of view by the Democrats. In a nutshell, and we'll, we're going to do a different episode on this, but but I'm mentioning it just because it, you know sometimes I'm. Uh, critical of, of Justice Alito, and sometimes I'm complimentary. Um, we're going to talk about the Obergefell same-sex marriage decision today, and oh, I'm, people can read already that I, I, when that decision came out, I was very critical of Justice Alito's traditionalist dissent. That, that was a piece that, that appeared in print several years ago. But on independent state legislature doc um, idea, this is, is just in a nutshell, because I want to tease this now, because we're getting a whole bunch of maybe new listeners and, and what they can expect, um, not just in this episode, but in, in future episodes, there's a real possibility that in about six states that have reddish state legislatures, but bluish presidential electorates, the legislature will try to do one of the following four things, one or more. One, before the election even begins, saying, we, the state legislature, are going to pick the electors. Um, Because elections are fraud, there's too much stealing going on. Are they allowed to do that? Well, at the founding, they could, but there are some state constitutions that um, I think are best read as saying, oh, no, the state constitution of Colorado, for example, requires that the people of Colorado pick um, presidential electors. And by the way, the six that I'm thinking of that are reddish legislatures but um, bluish presidential um, electorates are states like Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Virginia. There might be a couple of others, but um, that's what we're talking about. And if, if the Republican legislature just pick the electors from day one, game over. Um, or, here's a second version, oh, we'll let the voters vote in our state, but we, the state legislature, by law, in advance, are going to reserve to ourselves the right to decide who really won, notwithstanding provisions of our state constitution that says state judges decide election matters in places like Pennsylvania. The reason it's called independent state legislature theory is this idea that the state legislature, according to some folks, and I and Vic and I are harshly critical of them, think the state legislature just operates independently of its state constitution. Here's a third thing they might try to do. They might try to say, oh, before the election, we are going to decide that the 
uh, electoral votes are going to be um, not winner take all, but but split up in in, in some way uh, because they anticipate that the um, the, the, the Democrats going to win. Uh, the state, and so they're going to try to make it winner take most, or or winner take some rather than winner take all. Notwithstanding that, maybe that's inconsistent with the state constitution, best understood, perhaps as uh, uh, interpreted by state supreme court justices. A fourth thing they might try to do is after the election, they might say, "Oh, it was close; it was in the margin of error in our state, so we're going to jump back in and redecide things because it was a failed election." Those are four scenarios, my audience members, that. Ye- are really worrisome that could emerge in 2024. And, oh, if they do, Vic Amar and Akhil Amar have a piece. We've already written it. We've uploaded it on the Internet. You can find it on a site called SSRN that actually says why this is baloney. Um, And in that, oh, we're very critical of some of the same justices um, whose draft opinion in in, um, Dobbs um, I've uh, been defending. And of course, that piece, although it's on SSRN now, it's going to appear in the Supreme Court review um, later this year. Right. And the Supreme Court review is a faculty, a very distinguished faculty edited journal out of the University of Chicago. So that's what our audience can expect. I'm going to call it straight. You know, let the chips fall where they may. Sometimes I'm going to be with the liberals. Sometimes I'm going to be with the conservatives. Personally, I identify as a Democrat and a liberal. We may talk about that some more. But I try to distinguish my personal views from the best interpretation of the Constitution, from a, 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 the perspective of, of someone who really believes there is a difference between law and politics and that the Constitution actually says something that's not the equivalent of, of just what I happen to believe personally. We could say that you, your week was topped off by uh, the first ever joint interview with uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Amy Coney Barrett. That they had never done an interview together. And this is, again, con- connected to the, the left and right, both talked to uh, uh, Amar. I got asked to do this. Um, and in my head, I sort of thought to myself, it hasn't been uploaded yet, but it, it will soon. Um, and when it is, we'll, we'll tell the audience where they can find it. It was an hour interview that I did last Thursday. Um, and the two of them had never done a joint appearance before, uh, Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Sonia Sotomayor. Um, and so I imagine myself, you know, all, alternatingly as sort of Phil Donahue or... Andy Lipka, my two favorite you know, interviewers. And in actually Lipka fashion, I was supposed to just ask them questions, but I couldn't resist actually you know, putting in my own ideas from time to time. And, and I got that from you, Andy. I learned from the best. Well, Phil Donahue and Andy Lipka, that reminds me of uh, when I was a, an undergraduate at Yale. We had the humorous debate um, before the Princeton football game, and it was uh, resolved that for God, for country, and for Yale is the greatest anticlimax in history. I think, you know, for, uh, for, for Phil Donahue and Andy Lipka would be another example of that. But I anyway. did an event with Phil Donahue, sponsored by, uh, we were both invitees of Ralph Nader. He has a, a tort museum up in uh, Connecticut, and, and we did, uh, Phil Donahue and I were the two guests, and we did this event together. It was very, it was very fun. It was very cool. He's a very nice guy. But truthfully, I was really hoping he would bring Marlo Thomas because I had a crush on her growing up and and she didn't come, alas. Okay. So in response to the, or at least one of the things that came out of the Wall Street Journal essay, as well as our podcast last week, was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal later um, entitled, Alito Doesn't Want Your Contraceptives. And they picked up on a theme that we had in our last podcast, which had to do with the question of 
you know, to what degree is the sky falling for a for a large number of precedents that many Americans hold dear to their hearts, uh, including cases like Griswold versus Connecticut, um, Eisenstadt versus Baird, uh, Loving versus Virginia, and many others. Um, and so we went through some of those, and the journal actually uh, went a little further in terms of Griswold because we had quoted some uh, comments that people had made during their con- their confirmation hearings, and they went went uh, beyond it. Which Andy, hold on, because th- they built on what you and I started. So, um, audience members, this is what happened when we were um, prepping for our last episode. I said. Well, um, I'm, um, I said to Andy, in Sam Alito's confirmation hearings, he really, really clearly pledged allegiance to these birth control cases, Griswold about married couples, Eisenstadt about unmarried couples. And I said, well, where did he do that? And I said, well, here's the quote, and here's the quote. And, and he never said anything comparable about Roe versus Wade, because he, he basically said he thought Griswold and Eisenstadt were rightly decided. And if they're rightly decided, you don't even need to worry about precedent. You agree with them. You don't need to hide band precedent. You, you think they're correct. Um, so, and he said that really clearly, and Sam Alito was a straight shooter. And I said, and he never said anything like that. About Roe. And then we had Amy Coney Barrett. You found it. Oh, I, I had a John, John Roberts in his confirmation hearings, and, and he was quite emphatic. And he, and he says, this isn't going to come up. It's not a live issue. And then, so I found Roberts and Alito in their confirmation hearings. And you, you did me one better, and, and you found Amy Coney Barrett, who said, it's very, 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 you know, it's like seven varies in a row, unlikely that this is going to come up. What are you talking about? Okay. And then the Wall Street Journal, building on what we did, found comparable quotes from Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh, um, so oh, and Neil Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we started it, and they actually not only cited our podcast but built on it. And I think providing useful information to America. And, and you could say, well, they, you know, they just lied. And I said, no. Look carefully at what they said about contraception and what they did not say about abortion. It's, it's absolutely clear that if you listen to them carefully, and this is what we were just talking about before, listening to people, even if you may not agree with them, at least hearing what they're saying and not saying, what their position is, they were sharply contradistinguishing their views in general about Griswold, the um, uh, case about use of mari- uh, use of contraception in a marital bedroom, and Eisenstadt, a case about distribution of contraception in general to unmarried couples, they were distinguishing contraception in general from abortion. And then you and we could get into some you know fine distinctions. Well, what about certain kinds of contraception that may ha- have abortifacient? properties that might operate post-conception but pre-implantation or things like that? What about the IUD and all the rest? So, you know, there, there, there may be some close cases. The difference between night and day, Andy, for a lawyer is actually the difference. It's called dawn and dusk. There's, it's shades of gray. You know, so almost any distinction, um, a really clever lawyer can, can find a case in the, arguably in the middle in some ways, but there's still a difference between night and day. Um, and, and they think that in general... Abortion on the one hand and contraception on the other are quite, quite distinct because most forms of abortion are taking place 
long after conception and implant, implantation. They're taking place, you know, at fetal heartbeat, five to six weeks or 15 weeks, the Mississippi law, 22 weeks was Roe versus Wade. Common law quickening is about 15, 16, 17, 13 weeks, sort of, there's, it's a window. So anyway. Um, by the way, one thing on IUDs, I think, uh, you know, that's a, a kind of a classic argument that we hear from time to time. But in fact, most IUDs now are progestin IUDs which also use uh, hormones in them. So, so they don't just act by uh, preventing implantation. They also act in a way similar to birth control pills. And this is why it's, this is an amazing podcast because you're going to get you know, a, a real doctor and not just one who plays a doctor on television uh, telling you about uh, some of these complicated issues. But anyway, so last time we went through these cases and we kind of left off with uh, where we felt we were getting towards okay, this case isn't in danger, that case isn't in danger. Yeah, but now- Griswold is safe, mm-hmm. um, Eisenstadt is safe. We also identified as safe Loving versus Virginia, a case about interracial marriage. Um, we also identified as safe uh, Lawrence versus Texas, a right of uh, same-sex sodomy. But in fact, we, were, we kind of stopped at Lawrence without getting into exactly why um, it was safe. And that was because we wanted to contrast it with Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case, um, to see, because that's where, first of all, we know, we know Justice Alito uh, is a, a passionate critic of Obergefell, um, and, of course, it's a case that's very dear to your heart. You've, you've been a very, very powerful advocate um, for the rightness of Obergefell. Um, so why don't, you, why don't we get into a little bit about why you think Lawrence is safe and why Obergefell is not as safe. So let's start with Lawrence versus Texas, which, by the way, overrules a precedent. And so if you're uh, Elena Kagan and you just say press and press and precedent, then you're undercutting Brown, which walked away from Plessy versus Ferguson, and you're undercutting the court switch in time in the 1930s, which walked, walked away from the Lochner-era cases, um, and you're um, undercutting... Uh, West Virginia versus Barnett, the flag salute case that that overruled an earlier case called Gabitis and and the Warren Court generally, which overruled lots and lots of cases. But you're also, um, uh, if you're just a press and press and press and person, you then would might have a problem with Lawrence versus Texas, which overrules an earlier case called Bowers versus Hardwick, and Lawrence. Just to remind our audience, was a case about sodomy, um, same-sex sodomy um, in, in the case at hand. And sodomy is defined in, um, in some of the states that uh, supposedly prohibited it as involving um, uh, oral sex as well as anal sex. There, there are at least two distinct constitutional arguments against uh, these sorts of laws. And, and one is that they just violate a principle of equality, of birth equality, when you prosecute basically gays. Uh, but not straights, people who are born gay uh, rather than people born straight. The Lawrence opinion uh, by Justice Kennedy actually emphasized a different aspect um, of the case, uh, focusing more on substantive due process, or I would prefer if we called it privileges and immunities in the United States, which are unenumerated rights that, um, um, if solid, if sound, are often... Um, strongly rooted in American customs, mores, practices, traditions. 
But they could also be enumerated rights, right? They, the privileges and immunities certainly apply to the Bill of Rights, which are absolutely enumerated. yes, both enumerated and unenumerated. But if they're enumerated, it's easy. You look at the text. But if they're not, where do you find them? And I'm saying you can find them in tradition, in custom, in practices, and mores. Here's what Justice Kennedy said: "Quote: Laws prohibiting sodomy." do not seem to have been enforced against consenting adults acting in private for much of American history. It was not until the 1970s that any state singled out same-sex relations for criminal prosecution, and only nine states have done so. Over the course of the last decades, states with same-sex prohibitions have moved toward abolishing them, unquote. And then um, my language, um, this is from a, a book that I wrote in 2012, America's Unwritten Constitution, noting that as of 2003, only 13 states had laws on the books prohibiting consensual adult sodomy, four of which enforced their laws only against homosexual conduct. Kennedy stressed that, quote, in those states where sodomy is still proscribed, whether for same-sex or heterosexual conduct, there is a pattern of non-enforcement with respect to adults acting in private. So he's actually saying there actually aren't very many states that are prohibiting this. And second, um, uh, the states that do prohibit this actually don't enforce it against private consensual conduct. Um, and, and it turns out that there was a, there's a reason why, because the evidence law in general in America didn't allow accomplices to testify against each other. So um, if two people... Are, two adults in private are consenting to a certain kind of uh, sexual intimacy. Um, neither can testify against the other because um, uh, they're accomplices, and uh, so there's, uh, there's no evidence. In a rape situation, one could testify against the other, saying, I wasn't an accomplice, I was a victim, it was non-consensual. Um, and if they are engaging in um, public um, displays of, of too much affection, acts of public indecency, well, then they would, outside the four walls of uh, some uh, a private dwelling place, um, well, then there would be witnesses. Um, but private adult consensual, uh, consensual conduct was almost never prosecuted, and, and there are reasons why. So um, Kennedy in Lawrence is actually telling us why those sorts of laws, in effect, are going to satisfy the the, the opinion, uh, the draft opinions criteria in, in in Dobbs, which are connected to other cases that were on the books um, at the time, or you know, in the modern era, like Washington versus Glucksburg, which the Dobbs opinion talks about. But oh, Akhil Amar talks about them, and he reads that those cases the exact same way that um, Justice Alito does in this 2012 um, book um, talking about unenumerated rights. Uh, And Glucksburg, which is a case about assisted suicide, um, basically said that doesn't have um, enough support in American custom and tradition. What I said is, gee, there's a a, a powerful moral argument for the ability to sort of end one's life. It's a very deep and personal decision, but the Supreme Court rejected it. So uh, if we're just analyzing it analytically, oh, I'm not sh- uh, from a kind of a moral principles point of view, Washington versus Glucksburg could be challenged. But if the, 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 the way you cash out unenumerated rights, privileges, immunities of citizens, is not to ask, 
what do judges think is sort of the, the right moral answer, but instead, what's the right balancing of, of, of liberty and restrictions on liberty, if you instead say, how does America actually operate, um, then this opinion, which was written by William Rehnquist, says you look at custom and tradition, and that's really, uh, and, you, and in doing that, you count states, and Kennedy and Lawrence says you not only count state laws on the books, you actually should pay attention to how the, whether those state laws are actually enforced or not, whether you know, prosecutors prosecute and grand juries indict and, and uh, trial juries convict. Well, so, so here's how I react to that as, as a layman. Um, when I read, when I think about counting states, you know, I'm thinking that, okay, this is an indication of how the American people have expressed their will, you know, through electing their state legislators or even appointing their district attorneys or even mm-hmm. electing the district attorneys in mm-hmm. some in some some ways and they make a decision whether to prosecute or not so that's a reflection mm-hmm. of whether uh, of of whether or not people the american people consider this to be a privilege or immunity or if they or one of their rights um, yes. so okay so that's one that's way that's the of thinking, idea that's the idea right and you know and so we have okay marital privacy you know, the justices are all, most of them are on record as saying there is a privacy right. Marital privacy is, is you know, perhaps the most important uh, application of that right. I think Clarence Thomas said something to that effect in his confirmation hearing. Okay, fine. But now you're telling me, well, it's not really that we're respecting marital privacy. In fact, it's that the evidence laws make it so that you wouldn't be able to convict somebody. So that seems like a more of a technical or procedural, um, uh, you know, rather than a an inculcation of of the American people's decision about their morality or their rights. Now, one way to interpret that might be that this rule against you don't testify against an accomplice is actually another expression of privacy. Yes, that's you know that which is so. And no one pays any attention to that part of of Lawrence versus Texas. You and I have talked about two different kinds of law. The law that regulates people in the real world. You and I are um, on the street together, and uh, there'll be rules about which side of the road you should drive on and which side I should drive on, or how do we make a contract, um, or what would be tort that I, you know, that, you, that if, I, if I swung my fist at you um, unjustifiably, or um, what would be a crime if I swung my fist at you um, unjustifiably. So there are, there's the law for basically people in the world. And then there's a special set of laws um, for the legal system itself. Because once you have rules of contract and tort and property and criminal law governing um, our conduct in the world, we at a minimum, we have to actually get out of each other's way to a certain extent. Uh, ideally, we have to be able to work together to trade, to cooperate, to build things together. So that's the law of property and contract and tort and criminal law, how we can uh, respect each other's rights and maybe even cooperate you know, as human beings because we are you know, on, on this earth together. That's ordinary law. But in order to make ordinary law of contract, property, tort, criminal law work, you're going to need a legal system. You're going to need legislators and, and therefore election laws and judges and juries and prosecutors of the law. Of, and you're going to need a law for the legal system itself. Things like evidence law, proceed, civil procedure, criminal procedure, jurisdiction law, um, 
Other laws of law include constitutional law, administrative law, a thing called choice of law. You know, when someone from, for example, um, state A, where abortion is prohibited, goes over to state B to procure an abortion and then comes back to state A, you know, which law governs that transaction? That's called choice of law or conflicts of law. International law, jurisprudence, legal ethics. Those are the law of law, and they're special, and I think they should be at the heart of what law schools teach. They have to teach contract tort, uh, property law, um, criminal law, but then they also need to teach the law of law. And to me, this um, uh, thing about Lawrence versus Texas is frankly particularly interesting. You know, you're always in this podcast going to kind of get my t- special take on all this stuff because it's substantive law meets kind of the law of law, procedure law. And Andy, you just came up with a really interesting idea that maybe some of that evidence law about accomplice testimony might actually be rooted in privacy um, interest. Or maybe not. Maybe it has nothing to do with that, but the people who pass these laws understand that in operation, here's actually how the law will operate. It won't be able to be applied against um, consenting adults acting in privacy because they actually know the evidence laws because um, they created the evidence laws as well. Ordinary people you know, might not be wise to, to all that, but maybe people in the legal system understand how this law will actually operate um, given... Um, all the laws and not just substantive law, not just criminal law, but evidence law. So, so much for Lawrence. So, so you feel that Lawrence is safe because ultimately, let's just get back to um, how this fits into Justice Alito's uh, draft opinion. He's saying that um, rights, in order for them to be recognized, have to either be enumerated or they have to be part of the tradition and practice, uh, I don't know if that's exactly the words he used, but something to that effect of the yeah. American people. Yeah. Um, and so you're demonstrating that by counting states, um, Justice Kennedy addressed this. So, you know, what would the argument be against it? There were so few states that had such a law, and those that did have them didn't even enforce them. Right. So it's, so where are we going with this? So, right. um, okay. And it's not, and if we can trace And that, in that respect, it's like the law in Griswold and like the law in Eisenstadt and like the law in Loving versus Virginia. Okay. And contrasting that with Roe, um, where, you know, at the time of, of Roe, for example, the decision overturned, you were saying 49 or maybe 50 um, of state laws. Yes. Every state, with the possible exception of New York, was out of sync with Roe, or put differently, Roe was out of sync with the law of at least 49, maybe all 50 states, and, by the way, the federal government as well. So that's if you're going to use a counting approach. Yes. Um, is there another approach that uh, Justice Alito or, or and his brethren might uh, might use? Well, I, I think there are other possibilities. My friend Jeff Rosen asked me at the New York Historical Society event, well, what about polls? And I said, well, polls actually are um, m- more dangerous. Um, uh, courts generally tend not to rely on them. Um, they can be uh, unreliable. They, they can be very much influenced by the way in which the question is asked. Um, they often don't capture uh, regional variation. They don't off, always capture intensity of preference or um, whether the issue um, will generate um, single-issue voting or not. Um, I like to say that really the only, the only real poll that counts is the poll on election day, and then after that, which, in which we elect representatives, and then they 
pass laws, and those are enforced in a legal system with things like, to repeat, judges and juries and, um, and grand juries, and, and, and polls aren't really part of that legal system. So as a legal formalist, I can understand why the court, in many, many areas, has actually relied on state counting. Um, in cruel and unusual punishment case law, and note the word unusual, um, the court has often just counted states. So let's take the question of whether um, someone can be put to death for pickpocketing. And the answer is, yes, there was a time in America where people could be put to death for pickpocketing. And just read Oliver Twist, or oh, go see the, it's kind of an outlandish musical, um, but there's a, a song, you have to pick a pocket or two. Um, but pickpocketing was um, a capital offense in England and America at a certain point. And it was usual. And people, uh, but today it's not. It's unusual and therefore unconstitutional. And since I'm on my Oliver Twist uh, uh, jag for whatever reason, there was a time when English law and American law put to death people who were 13 years old at the time of the crime or 14 years old, like the artful dodger, had he, had he been caught. At a certain point, American mores evolved and changed, and, and that became unusual and therefore cruel and unusual, and therefore unconstitutional. And the court, I promise you, in many, many cases, actually cashes out the Eighth Amendment, the cruel and, no cruel and unusual punishment idea, by actually counting states. And, and sometimes counts not just laws on the books, but how many actual convictions, um, you, um, or how many actual capital sentences um, are carried out, and the like. So you see it in that area. We've just been talking about uh, some of these other cases where the court explicitly counts. In Gideon versus Wainwright, the, the text was actually, I think, um, compelling that you have a right to counsel, um, uh, and if you can't afford it, it's a meaningless right. And so the court said the government has to provide counsel for indigent criminal defendants. You can say, oh, well, that went beyond the text. Maybe. Um, but even at the founding, even when you didn't always have formally a right to a lawyer if you were indigent, in theory, the court was supposed to help you, was supposed to be your counsel. And the court, the judge, that is, um, is paid by the government. So that was actually appointed counsel, government-sponsored counsel, a certain sort. we eventually came to realize the judge can't easily be both a referee and a coach, you know, both at the same time. So we began to sort of split the roles, and so it's not so easy for the judge to be a, a presiding officer and also you know, in the defendant's corner as the defendant's counsel. But at the end of that opinion by Hugo Black, which, by the way, overruled a precedent, Gideon versus Wainwright overrules Betts versus Brady, you see. And it's one of the glories of our system, Elena. So, um, so none of this present, present, present thing calls into question, delegitimizes some of the, the most glorious cases in, in, the, in our firmament. West Virginia versus Barnett and, and Brown and Gideon versus Wainwright and, and the Warren Court generally. But at the end of Gideon versus Wainwright... Justice Black actually notes that only five states are um, not on the bandwagon yet. And, and he says, and even in those states that aren't on the bandwagon, they offer uh, appointed counsel in some cases, but not all, in capital cases and in big cities, um, for example. So, oh. so you see this counting methodology in many, many areas of law. I just gave you a right of counsel case. I talked about privacy cases. I talked about the cruel and unusual punishment cases. You see it, and you don't see 
um, reliance uh, on polls very often. Um, but some have asked, what about polling data? Jeff Rosen asked a very good question about that. I mean, an obvious objection to the counting states is that, well, you can you can get a bunch of little states, and then you know the big the big states should count more. And, that, and, and I have suggested that as a friendly amendment or addition to court practice. Now, often it kind of cancels out because um, sometimes you'll have, especially in today's culture war um, issues, California is going to be on one side and Texas on another side. And Florida is going to be on, uh, uh, on, on Texas's side, maybe, but New York is going to be on California's side. So, uh, but yes, I think in principle, we should adjust for population, in fact. That, that's one of my friendly amendments. But that's more objective. Um, it avoids some of the problems, I think, that just reliance on poll data um, uh, would create. And then finally, I mean, I want to move on, but I think this is an important you know, question. Um, what constitutes overwhelming? You know, is it two-thirds? Is it four-fifths? Maybe three-quarters because they, to amend the Constitution? Yep. You, you know, I mean, yep. but, and, but, and, and I say, strictly speaking, we're not amending the Constitution. We already did that with the right. 14th Amendment. We're in implementing it. And, and so I don't think it has to be th- three-quarters of the states, for example, which is required um, for a constitutional amendment under Article 5. And here's why I don't. Why do we have a high bar for constitutional amendment? Because certain things, if it was hard to put into the Constitution, I think it symmetrically should be hard to take out of the Constitution. And especially an amendment could, in theory, take rights out of the Constitution. And I don't want to make it easy to take rights out of the Constitution that were hard to put into the Constitution, like free speech, free press, petition, assembly, free exercise, and the like. So a bar to amendment should be high, especially for those of us who love rights, because an amendment could actually take away rights. But contrary-wise, now we're actually talking about a quadrant that's only about unenumerated rights. We're not polling, we're not counting states if something is already in the Constitution. We're just enforcing it come hell or high water. So we're only talking about unenumerated rights, and I think the bar maybe should be a little bit lower for that because there's not the, 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 the risk of rights reduction that there is in the amendment process. Well, I think that that, you know, it's a great point, and it goes to... Uh, you know, my favorite quote from Robert Jackson that I've read on this podcast before about, about these fundamental rights not depending on the results of a, of a, of a it says he, they depend on the results of no election. And of course, that's an overstatement. But the idea is that it should be extremely difficult to take the rights the, that, that Americans hold so dear out of the Constitution, that they're there um, and they don't need to be voted on continuously. We don't have to constantly reaffirm them every two, two years when we vote for right. Congress. Um, and, and that sort of thing. So that and, and, and two points on that, Andy. So I, I, this is embarrassing, but it is a good point. And it's the kind of point that you will not hear new members um, of our audience on any other podcast. It's a very, very sophisticated, fine-grained legal point about how we should do counting and, 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 and not just that big states should count more because they constitute more of um, the citizens whose privileges and immunities we're trying and whose understandings of their own privileges and immunities we're trying to cash out, but also how much uh, should we demand. I'm saying since we're you know, basically fully, we're implementing um, uh, rights and we're, and we're adding um, uh, rights rather than subtracting, we should be more generous 
So it is a good point, Andy, and, and you won't hear that on any other podcast. Second, the case that you invoked, the quote that you invoked, is from Robert Jackson in the Flag Salute case, 1943 Barnett, which Elena overruled Gobitis from 1940. Okay, and it's one of the great cases of all time. You're a First Amendment scholar, and it wasn't precedent, precedent, precedent. Oh, and I want to tell you something else, Sonia. You know I love you. We just did an episode together, but you suggested in one of the, and we talked about in an earlier episode, um, that maybe it's particularly problematic if um, there's a different result because of a change of judicial personnel. That was one of the memes that we we talked about um, in an earlier episode, there was a change of judicial personnel between Gobitis and Barnett. Yes, some people changed their minds. Justice Black changed his mind, so did Justice Douglas, so did Justice Murphy. Um, um, so there were changes of mind, but there were also two new justices on the court, um, and two had, had rotated off, and there was also a new chief justice. One of the uh, associate justices actually had become chief, so a new chief, um, two old folks were off the court, Hughes and McReynolds. Uh, two new people were on the court, and, and that was part of the difference between Gobitis and, and Barnett, which is connected to our conversation more generally about whether it's ever proper to just repudiate precedents because you think they're wrong. Because in 1940, in the Gobitis case, the court, eight to one, said, oh, it's perfectly okay to punish school children for refusing to pledge allegiance to the flag. And the, 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 uh, the form of the flag salute that was um, required back then was actually a, a Hitler-like um, stiff-arm salute. It wasn't a hand over the heart. Oh, boy. Um, you know, I think we should just uh, sort of clean up our, our language here on precedent. But, you know, we, we ran a, a series of uh, episodes before the oral argument in the Dobbs case back in November uh, when we talked about, we gave sort of a primer on precedent. And the reason we did was not because Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor believe that precedents can never be overruled, but they had a feeling that there had to be some kind of special circumstance that couldn't be overruled simply because the decision was wrong, that there had to be something else, you know, some other reason to do so. And so we tried to be, uh, you know, somewhat rigorous about that. So you talked about naked overrules, which were, and you said that at least seven times in the 20th century, the court overruled another case for re- no reason other than the fact that it was wrong. Right. Now, Justice, or, and we might say egregiously wrong, egregious. clearly wrong. Okay. And in the, in the Dobbs draft opinion, uh, Justice Alito has a footnote which has dozens of cases where he cites you know, uh, overrulings. These were, in many cases, not naked overrulings. And of course, Brown is an example of that. As we've, as we've discussed, it didn't, it wasn't even an overruling, in fact. Right. Um, but, but, but here, I mentioned in the Wall Street Journal piece, at least three um, distinct lines of analysis that might lead to an overruling. One, a case made sense when it came down. It wasn't wrongly decided. It wasn't egregiously wrongly decided. But subsequent events, intervening events, have undermined, I think I used the word mocked, the expectations or the logic of the precedent-setting court. So the world changes in various ways, and so the case that may have made sense doesn't make sense anymore because things in the world change. Second basis for overruling. There are 
um, lines of cases, they evolve um, uh, as new fact patterns are generated and new decisions um, are rendered. Um, but the evolving lines of cases uh, begin to converge and even clash. And something has to give in the name of precedent because you actually can't fully vindicate both lines of precedent because they're now on a collision course. So you're going to have to overrule at least one line, maybe the other line, because they can't both actually coexist as they've been evolving. Sometimes people also talk about whether a line of precedent is workable or not. You could fit that into my, my framework of the, the previous two categories. A third and distinct basis for overruling is, Andy, what we called in an earlier episode, what you reminded um, us about, naked overrulings, where the basic argument is simply the case, um, the earlier case, the precedent-setting case, was wrong, was indeed egregiously wrong, was simply inconsistent with what the Constitution rightly read and with all humility um, says. And the all humility is, we think it's wrongly decided even after we've factored in that an earlier court with uh, honorable jurists trying to do their job thought otherwise. So a naked overruling is simply saying, no, they're not new facts necessarily about the world. It's not uh, uh, proved unworkable in application. It's not that they're uh, clashing lines of precedent. We now think just that the, the, the original court just got it wrong as a matter of constitutional meaning, even after we've tried to, in our own minds, factor in the fact that, um, that these are thoughtful people who um, had a different view. We, we, we take that on board. Okay, so now getting, with all that in, in hand, um, to try, sort of clarify what Justice Alito is saying uh, in terms of the approach that um, he takes to deciding whether or not a right is in the Constitution or uh, can be inferred as an unenumerated right um, through the constitutional uh, procedure for, for determining that. Now we look at, we've looked at Lawrence, now we look at Obergefell. So how does Obergefell differ from Lawrence? What does it say? And why? what does Justice Alito uh, and possibly his brethren say that may be applicable to Obergefell? So he doesn't say a lot, and Obergefell is the one case that's a little bit more vulnerable. In the end, I, I think it um, is not going to be threatened by the Dobbs for several reasons, but let's just first think analytically, um, internally, and then I'll give you a more realist um, account. Uh, so, so first I'll play lawyer, and now, then I'll play kind of political scientist, because uh, I teach in both departments. So the lawyer in me says, Obergefell isn't merely a substantive due process case. It's actually, um, same, Obergefell is same-sex marriage, and it's not deeply rooted in tradition and history, um, unless we think history and tradition started in 2003 or whatever, 2005. At the beginning of this century, um, two people the same sex basically can't easily get married anywhere. I say easily because, in fact, technically they could be married, and here's how, even before 2000. But if a man and a woman marry, and then one of them undergoes what used to be called sex change operation, gender reassignment um, uh, surgery therapy, um, that does not end when Bruce Jenner becomes Caitlyn Jenner. That ipso facto does not end 
the marriage the way a death would or a divorce would. So that's same-sex marriage everywhere where there's um, um, a change of sex. But but apart from that little wrinkle, which again you only get on a Marcus Constitution. Other well, I think it matters though. I don't mean, talk about that. That's going to come. Yeah, up, I think it's a nice you know, you know a clever little point, mm-hmm. but um, or maybe a, you know moderate size point. But but. On the Obergefell, on the on the the Dobbs tradition framework, it's hard to say that same-sex marriage is rooted in um, the American tradition, but I don't think it needs to be because it's um, the strongest argument for Obergefell is it's not an unenumerated right to marry, it's an enumerated right to be treated equally. Birth equality, we had a whole episode on birth equality just a few weeks ago, and birth, it doesn't say race. It says everyone, the first sentence of the 14th Amendment says, everyone born in America is born a citizen. And I say what that meant, and audience members, I just, you know, if you want more, you're just going to have to listen to that earlier episode. That means everyone is born a full and equal citizen. And yes, that means you're born equal, whether you're born black or white, Um, But if they only meant race, they could have said race, and they didn't, the way they said in the 15th Amendment, race, color, previous condition of servitude. So I say the birth equality idea is an idea that you're born equal whether you're born black or white, or male or female, or in wedlock or out of wedlock, or firstborn or fifthborn in your family, or born to um, citizen parents, or born to non-citizen parents, or born gay or straight. So Obergefell, on my view, is just an equality idea. If straights have a right to pursue marital happiness, gays, people who are born gay, should have a right to pursue marital happiness. And in addition to that, so that's just the, the, the idea of equality, sexual orientation equality, and it doesn't have to be rooted in tradition. It's rooted in the text of birth equality. That's my first claim. My second claim is Obergefell is also justified on proto-Bostock reasoning. Bostock was a case about workplace discrimination against gays and lesbians. In a nutshell, laws that discriminate on grounds of sexual orientation are also laws that discriminate on grounds of sex, which is a birth equality um, issue. So the way I put it in the Wall Street Journal piece um, was that Patrick is allowed to marry Mary, but Patricia isn't. Well, that's a sex discrimination. You know, Patrick is um, um, being allowed to marry a certain person, call her Mary, and Patricia isn't. Well, that's treating Patrick different than Patricia. That doesn't mean it's it's unconstitutional, but it does mean it's a sex discrimination that is subject to um, um, very uh, strict judicial scrutiny. And that's not unenumerated rights analysis. That's not counting analysis. That's um, not tradition. Um, It's just um, in, um, the, the word equal and seeing um, the deep idea of, of, of equality uh, underlying um, uh, birth equality uh, underlying the constitutional text. When Obergefell was decided, I published a ringing defense of it. Um, and in that ringing defense, I sharply criticized my friend Samuel Alito. Here's what I said. Because I see him, I hear him, I know what he said. And he dissented in Obergefell, and that's why some people say, oh, same Samuel Edo's and Dobbs, and, and Obergefell is doomed. And I say, no, because Obergefell isn't just a case about substantive due process, it's a case about equality. Um, and, and Dobbs is just giving us a framework for substantive due process analysis, 
Um, and we're going to have to talk about the equality aspect of, 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 of Dobbs, which we haven't yet, Andy. But here's my pretty sharp critique of Justice Alito. But I'm trying to be respectful, but you know, I'm not pulling my punches here. Um, and this is a piece, we'll put it up on our show notes, that um, was published in Slate on July 10th, 2015. It's entitled, What the Same-Sex Marriage Case Should Have Said and Almost Did. So, you know, n- not even seven years ago. Ju- finally, Justice Samuel Alito was highly persuasive in reminding us that the anti-same-sex marriage law as laws at issue were hardly irrational. Following tradition is often quite rational, and every reform is likely to have unintended consequences. Not all those consequences, these consequences may be apparent immediately. Same-sex marriage is an experiment, and the jury is still out. Fair enough. See, I'm trying to hear him and, and give him his, his props. But once again, the same could have been said about um, couverture abolition in the 1970s when, when marriage uh, actually moves from in the rules of man and woman to sort of two spouses. And Alito's arguments merely explain why the laws at hand are rational. What he failed to explain is why mere rationality was enough, why these discriminatory laws should not be treated with special judicial skepticism as are many other traditional gender laws. Laws that discriminate against illegitimate children were not irrational, they arguably incentivized biological parents to marry, and some of these laws had deep historical roots. Yet the court rightly invalidated these laws as violative of the birth equality principle. Jim Crow was, pretty, was a pretty strong tradition in 1954, but Brown was nevertheless clearly right, and so is Obergefell. So I'm saying um, tradition isn't a good answer when you're dealing with an explicit constitutional guarantee of birth equality. And that's why Obergefell is safe, because I think it's rooted in a birth equality idea and not just in substantive due process slash tradition. Remember, this is just a draft, um, and it's going to be renegotiated. um, So I'm going to make two political science points. First, the draft will not succeed unless it gets five votes. It's not enough to get Sam Alito's own vote. It's not enough to get Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas's votes. And they both dissented in Obergefell. I get it. Oh, but they got to get Neil Gorsuch's vote, and Neil Gorsuch actually buys the Patrick-Patricia argument, or he did in Bostock. Okay, that's Obergefell-like logic. That was a Title VII case. Okay, and, um, and he's got to get... Um, and he might get Amy Coney Barrett's vote because she's a Scalia clerk, and she might be like Scalia, who dissented in Obergefell, okay? But you got to get to five, and I not see Gorsuch um, loving that line of argument, and I'm definitely not seeing Kavanaugh loving that line of argument, because I think he is in the Kennedy mold. So the internal point is just, regardless of um, the language of the, um, the, the draft opinion, um, and you could read it maybe in different ways, but I basically say he's talking about substantive due process analysis, and he's not giving us a full framework for equality analysis. And that's a flaw of the opinion, and it's going to have to, I think, be corrected, especially if other justices start talking about equality, which, Andy, you'll remember, you and I have been begging them to do from day one. And I still haven't given the audience my, my own you know, a, a full analysis of, of the equality 
uh, argument, and, 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 and I promise I will either today or in our next episode. Um, but the, that, but, so the internal political science point is you have to count to five, and I actually only see, truthfully, three who really think Obergefell was wrong. Um, and, and that's uh, Thomas Alito and, and maybe Amy Coney Barrett. But I don't see, actually, Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh as probably thinking that. My broader point is, um, outside the court, um, even though Obergefell was um, controversial, five to four, the day it came down, even though there were lots of states that weren't on board for same-sex marriage at the time, even though some of the states that were on board for same-sex marriage were on board because courts had imposed this um, on them, I think same-sex marriage is aging extremely well um, and, ver- and, 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 and at an ex- just an extraordinarily rapid pace, people are really um, falling in, in sync with it. It's more like loving versus Virginia um, in, in that respect. Um, so my view, abortion every, is not uh, less controversial today than when Roe was decided. It's maybe more controversial today, and there's more intense opposition to Roe, partly maybe because of sonograms and other things. Um, so, so Roe didn't age very well. Loving did, uh, and maybe in part because, again, of ultrasound technology. Roe, uh, Roe didn't age very well. Um, Loving did age very well. Um, and um, Obergefell is aging very well because I see every year more support for same-sex marriage um, and, less, um, and, and fewer opponents and less intense opposition. Uh, and yeah, I can imagine some states trying to push back against same-sex marriage, but um, uh, uh, many fewer um, than only seven years ago. Every year, the people who get Obergefell, who understand it, come of age. They move, they become, they're no longer 15-year-olds or 16-year-olds. They're 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds, and they're voting now. And the people who don't get Obergefell are dying off at a faster rate. It's dramatic, the, the age data on same-sex marriage. By the way, and I'm very critical of all the dissenters in Obergefell because they didn't address another argument, which we've already begun to talk about, um, which is the interstate argument. Just like in abortion, one issue is going to be, well, if it's illegal in Missouri, can you go across the state line to get one uh, legally in Illinois and come back? Um, Texas, uh, um, it may be illegal after fetal heartbeat, but can you go to Nevada um, or New Mexico and then uh, come, come back? In Obergefell, as long as some states are going to let you get married, do the other states have to recognize that marriage? Or does your marriage somehow fade in and out as you're driving up and down I-95? Which, um, and the dissenters in Obergefell didn't address that issue, a full faith and credit issue, and that's a law of law-like question. Which two people can get married? That's more like you know, the law for the real world. You and I are uh, you know, uh, we, we're, um, in the world together, and, 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 and can, how can we cooperate in various ways? Can we create a corporation? Can we make a contract? Can we get married? Okay, but then the law of law question is which law decides that? The law where we tried to get married, you and I, or um, uh, the law of our home jurisdiction, for example. So, so suppose, for example, you know, just um, two people um, go to Niagara Falls where it's legal to get married and then go back home uh, thereafter. One of the things I mentioned about Loving versus Virginia in our last episode is not just that um, only a third of the states 
who refused to recognize same-sex marriage, um, I think 16 out of 50, but even the ones that didn't often... You mean interracial often, marriage? Actually, interracial marriage, excuse me. Um, even the ones that didn't often let you get married, let's say in um, uh, you know, Niagara Falls or whatever, um, and then come back home, and they would recognize that. And so Obergefell seems safe to me, just um, uh, to repeat... Legally and analytically, because it's equality and the Dobbs draft is really only about unenumerated, which is an explicit right, and the Dobbs draft is about unenumerated substantive due process, privileges, or immunities, traditional rights. That's the legalistic argument. Um, and there's some ambiguous language in the draft, but I think it may be squeezed out um, in, in later iterations. Um, um, the political science arguments are two that I think internally on the court, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch actually are pro-Obergefell people, not anti-Obergefell people. I just don't know Amy Coney Barrett's um, views on that. And more generally, in the culture, I think more and more and more states, even if given the choice, would choose um, to embrace same-sex marriage now than um, a mere seven years ago. And even if they didn't, might say, okay... Um, we, we're going to recognize out-of-state same-sex marriage. And if, they, and if they didn't do that, there's still yet a different point that are they obliged to recognize out-of-state marriages because of, not because just equality or substantive due process, but because of yet another constitutional principle, the full faith and credit clause of Article 4. And, of course, this is going to come up, as you mentioned, regarding abortion law. And we're going to address this. We're going to get into this conflict of law uh, on, a, on a later episode. And um, whether Congress um, should play a role um, um, in all of this. Those are, see, and, you know, again, for our new listeners, this is the kind of technical legal detail that actually hugely matters in, in the world, just like independent state legislature doctrine. These are technical issues, but the, the election of 2024 could pivot on these things. And that's what we're offering, this deep dive into how the technicalities connect to the big picture. Right. And of course, it's not that we love technicality for its own sake, but that it, it matters. Um, and, we're, and it's not just whether we think it matters because we love the Constitution, but, as a, but in practicality, these, these technical as, you know, matters are going to be brought before courts and decisions are going to be made based on them, which are going to affect all of us. And I don't think the other podcasts out there, even by people who are law-trained, are actually filling this gap. So just to conclude here um, on this aspect of it, so we talked about Lawrence, we talked about Obergefell, and in the end, uh, the, the run of cases that people are worried about, as we said right at the beginning, Griswold, Eisenstein, on and on and on. Loving. And Loving um, Lawrence. and Lawrence and Obergefell. Um, you've detailed how some of them are really not substantive due process or privileges, immunities, uh, or at least unenumerated rights cases. More, mm -hmm. Some of them are enumerated rights, and that's... Equ and the equality idea in right. Loving versus Virginia. Well, and equality and goes to enumerated rights as well, right? Equality. equality is an enumerated right, yeah. And, yes. and it's relevant to Loving and Lawrence and Obergefell especially. But, but nevertheless, some of those cases have to do with unenumerated rights. And people that are worried, I think, are... They may not be saying it quite in these write these terms, but they're saying the opinion takes a revolutionary new approach to unenumerated rights. That's what they're saying. And, and, right, and we Is said that's that not true. true. See, see Glucksburg. 
Okay, so you see Washington versus Glucksburg, which was about right of assisted suicide. Let me actually read to the audience um, what I wrote because, um, especially after the Wall Street Journal piece, there have been a lot of people tweeting about you know my motivations and all the rest. I'm saying stuff now that I've always said, and I'm willing to criticize the conservatives when they deserve criticism and criticize the liberals when they deserve criticism, and and truthfully, I haven't um, uh, changed my, my, my stripes on this. So here's what I wrote about a landmark case in the jurisprudence of unenumerated rights, substantive due process, privileges, and immunities. It's a 1997 case, we've alluded to it, but I think we need our audience deserves a little bit more detail about this case. Washington versus Glucksburg. Um, and here's um, a, couple of page, uh, a couple of paragraphs um, from uh, an article that I published in the Yale Law Journal, which became a chapter of a book um, in 2012, America's Unwritten Constitution. And this is all about these lived constitutional rights, paying attention to how how people actually live their lives. And it's all about state counting, which I actually thought was the um, basic framework of analysis. Um, In other areas uh, beyond Roe versus Wade, uh, where litigants have made unenumerated rights claims far in advance of actual American practice, this is right after a paragraph, they say, well, Roe was really out there. And I'm saying Roe is vulnerable because it's really out there. And I'm predicting this a long time ago, you know, 2000 and and 12. In other areas where litigants have made unenumerated rights claims far in advance of actual American practice, the court has generally declined to rush in. For example, and this is me speaking, you see, from a certain, um, and um, uh, uh, I'm very sympathetic to a right of assisted suicide, um, personally. For example, a strong philosophical claim might be made on behalf of a right of any competent adult to end his own life. And again, competent is very important here, to end his own life at a time and in the manner of his own choosing and to enlist professional medical assistance in implementing his free choice. Nothing could be more private, none of the government's business, than the question of how and when one chooses to leave this world. Advocates the right have argued. I'm trying to put it very forcefully, and I have some sympathy with this point of view. I haven't come down clearly, but, but I see it. Um, Yet, in 1997, the court in Washington versus Glucksburg unanimously reversed an exuberant circuit court opinion that had declared a broad constitutional right to die. After setting forth the facts of the case, the Glucksburg court launched its analysis as follows. And then here's a quote. And this is actually very similar to what Dobbs itself says. But yeah, um, I, I present it the same way to my audience years ago. Here's the quote from Glucksburg. We begin, as we do in all due process cases, by examining our nation's history, legal traditions, and practices. In almost every state, indeed almost every Western democracy, it's a crime to assist a suicide. The state's assisted suicide bans are not innovations. Rather, they are long-standing expressions of the state's commitment to the protection and preservation of all human life. Indeed, opposition and condemnation, opposition to and condemnation of assisted uh, of suicide, and therefore of assisting suicide, are consistent and enduring themes of our philosophical, 
legal, and cultural heritages. That's the block quote. And I think Dobbs is actually fairly describing the Glucksburg framework, which is what I, that's the passage that I chose seven years ago um, to explain what the court basically is doing in this quadrant um, um, to my readers. Here's what, one final paragraph that I added. The justices have likewise declined to recognize a constitutional right of a patient to use an otherwise illegal drug, such as marijuana, when a licensed physician has prescribed the drug to alleviate intense pain. Although such a right has considerable moral appeal to many thoughtful analysts, (laughs) including yours truly, and may one day come to persuade a majority of Americans and their elected lawmakers, that day has not yet arrived, so Omar wrote back in 2012. On this issue... As on many other issues involving unenumerated rights, the court has shown little interest in leaping far ahead of America's lived experience. Now, just in the seven years since I wrote that, I think we've made, you know, there's been... Ten years. Ten years, excuse me, since I wrote that, a a, a lot of movement on on that issue. And I think if you read that passage carefully as a reader, you'd say, oh, Amar is saying, not yet, but but this may be changing. And he's even signaling, he personally is pretty sympathetic to this, but I don't want judges to decide for themselves, you know, what they think is the right balance or not. I want them to look at the American people and their understandings of their own privileges and immunities as citizens as measured by objective factors like state laws, um, I would say both on the books and in practice, you know, how the laws are actually enforced. So then to summarize then, this is, this is a, a method for substantive due process analysis on enumerated rights that mm-hmm. has been on the books for a while. Yes. It's been applied by the court, and you mentioned the Glucksburg is the unanimous court yes. um, in the past, and is this is cited by Alito in this opinion. Yeah. And he as far and in your reading, he's he's doing it he's he's proceeding in in a similar manner. He's not yeah. there's no innovation here. Uh, you know, um as I said, I, you know, th- th- some of the critics say, Oh, Amar's just trying to suck up to the court or something. I actually said it first. Um, mm-hmm. This is what I wrote a long time, and it seemed to me just describing what the court is doing that that was, you know, the pretty straightforward framework that that actually explained the cases because, in fact, Griswold is easy under this um, for the reason that we talked about, and basically so was Eisenstadt when you understood, you know, what was what was happening in America and and the dramatic um, uh, shift in practices. And I read you the the counting language um, of Lawrence versus Texas, and we talked last week about similar state-by-state data uh, on uh, interracial marriage, Loving versus Virginia. Um, so, and, and we talked about why um, it uh, equality re- requires a different kind of analysis. Um, but but I think those are the cases, the big ones. I mean, the other criticism, just to quickly review, is that people have been saying, well, you know, we're, we're frozen at the, you know, at, at the founding in the, in the 18th century, or we're frozen at the, at the uh, passage of the 14th Amendment. And, right. of course, we, but with an analysis... But that's not what these cases are doing. Right, and particularly you know, Loving, I think, was, a, was yeah. the best example there. Okay. Yeah, because, as we talked about, at the time of the founding, 
not a lot of uh, interracial marriage and maybe even some prescriptions, I'm not sure. But um, in the 1860s, there were a lot of prohibitions on interracial marriage. But by the 19th, and, and even in 1953, 54, the time of Brown, there were um, a, a majority of states probably prohibited, about 30 out of 50, I think we, uh, we, we said. Um, but by 1967, Loving versus Virginia, Two-thirds of the states allowed it, and the 16 that didn't, several of them actually at least, um, let you cross the state line and come back. Okay, so we've, we've been alluding to the fact that they're, um, first of all, that you're pro-choice, um, and for what it's worth, so am I. Yeah. Um, and also that you, know, you have this opinion about the constitutionality, the constitutional argument in Roe as having been weak, and also that the oral argument of Dobbs was weak because it relied on precedent rather than arguments uh, for why either Roe was right or Casey was right, or that an abortion right is is present in the Constitution. And you have referred to the uh, women's equality argument. Yes. Okay. And you've sort of teased it, you know, here that that you're going to make it. Yeah. What is the argument that uh, that an abortion right exists? in the Constitution because of, of factors related to women's equality. So let's get it out there now, and then let's elaborate in our next episode, talk about it more, and talk about the possibility of an entirely different opinion for the court with a, maybe a different lineup, um, how the liberals could actually um, uh, try to, to steal back a majority, uh, so to speak, with a different line of analysis. And there are going to be some other technical issues um, um, uh, that will, will come up next week. And by steal back majority, I do not mean this is illegitimate. This is not like an, a stolen election. It's, it's more like stealing second base. It's, it's permitted under the rules. Um, so um, the strong equality argument, there, there are different formulations, but, but here are a few that only women can get pregnant, and that laws that discriminate on the basis of pregnancy, um, as abortion laws do, that treat pregnant uh, people, um, that regulate pregnant people, are laws that regulate women and only women. There's a case that says, oh, pregnancy laws aren't aren't subject to sex discrimination analysis because it's, you're making a distinction between pregnant persons and non-pregnant persons, and non-pregnant persons include both women and men. And I say, that's a case called Gadaldig. And I say, that's, that's ridiculous. Because um, I'm not saying that all laws that, that, treat, that regulate pregnancy are unconstitutional. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying they're all logically sex-based and have to be carefully analyzed to see whether they create birth inequality, caste-like systems of birth inequality, first and second class citizens. So um, why must they logically be treated as sex discrimination? Because the argument is, oh, no, yes, it's true, the pregnant people involve only women, but on the other side you have um, women and men. But if treating a logical subset um, somehow got you out of heightened scrutiny, I could say, oh, I'm not, as a legislature, I'm not you know, passing a law restricting um, all black people and treating them worse than white people. I'm only going to treat black people who are oh, um, um, below the height of um, eight foot one um, this bad way. That's a logical subset. Oh, I'm only going to treat um, women 
um, badly who are under the age of um, uh, 97. Um, that's a logical subset of women. That, that's preposterous. Oh, I, I'm only going to, I'm not going to prevent um, uh, women from voting under the 19th Amendment, only pregnant persons. Well, that would be absurd, okay? So, but there is a case called Gadaldic. And the Alito draft just says, well, you know, the pregnancy discrimination argument, we've already addressed that, Gadaldic. Now, see, the dissenters should be the ones to say, if you're abandoning precedent when it comes to um, Roe versus Wade, you've got to be willing, because that's right, you've got to be willing to rethink precedent on the other side, my friend. And Gadaldig just doesn't cut it as a matter of first principles. But Elena, if you're going to say that, Sonia, if you're going to say that, um, you're going to have to actually get off this precedent, precedent, precedent kick. You're going to have to have, talk about first principles and things that are really in the Constitution, like equality. And, okay, no. So what is the equality argument? The equality argument is that um, we are treating women's bodies much more unfavorable than we do men's bodies. And um, we're doing so to perpetuate traditional gender roles. Um, um, so it's heightened scrutiny because they're treating women differently and, um, and it f- should flunk heightened scrutiny, the argument goes, because it's actually perpetuating um, certain traditional uh, women's... Um, uh, uh, putting women in the box, so to speak, um, uh, perpetuating certain traditional gender roles that have kept women down and out. Let's take um, uh, not an innocent unborn human life. Take, let's take an innocent born human life. The baby is born. The baby is three weeks old, um, seemingly um, you know, completely uh, independent, outside um, the mother's body, um, um, a, a, a constitutional citizen born in the United States, a birthright citizen, but the baby desperately needs a blood transfusion. Um, and only the father's blood will match. The biological father's blood will match. Our law doesn't require the biological father to give up one ounce of his blood, even though blood is replenishable. Um, let's say the baby needs a kidney transplant and only the biological father's blood, uh, kidney will match. Let's imagine the biological father is unmarried to the the, the, the biological mother, just to, for, to clean, make it a clean hypothetical. We don't require the biological father to give up a kidney, um, even though he's got two and he only needs one. Um, so why do we treat women's uteruses differently than men's blood, which is replenishable, or kidneys? So this is really, we're treating you know, them as just uh, baby machines, uh, um, and we don't do that for male body parts. That's one strong version of the equality argument. Here are the three problems with it, but I, you know, I've tried to put it in a, in a strong form. One, pregnancy isn't quite, the uteruses aren't quite the same as kidneys and blood. Um, so kidneys, you're actually losing it forever. You know, uterus is only a few months. Um, and, um, uh, um, and, and if we well, did... blood? Well, if we did blood, here's the second point. Fine. Abortion laws, uh, many of the proponents for abortion law would say, if in order to uphold these laws, we need to change the blood transfusion laws, we're happy to do that. It's a very, you know, a rare situation, and we'll do it. Okay. And then there's no inequality anymore for, 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 for blood. Now, um, so I don't think that's actually, in the end, it's maybe a clever argument. It stays off the problem for, you know, a few months, but then legislatures, you know, uh, pass blood laws, and, um, and we're back to square one again. Third argument, third problem. 
this women's equality argument doesn't give us that many resources to distinguish between 34 weeks, you know, of, of, um, you know right before um, uh, the baby is going to come out naturally, because um, uh, I'm analogizing it to a born baby. It doesn't give us resources to, to talk about um, how late-term abortions c- could be prohibited, and most people think they can be to allow, you know, uh, uh, just a an elective abortion of a 33-week-old fetus, many people would think is monstrous. So it doesn't give us the resources to distinguish between 33 weeks and 23, 23 weeks, 22 weeks, 21 weeks viability, 15 weeks um, Mississippi, um, 6 weeks fetal heartbeat, 2 weeks Plan B or something. Third problem is if it's really about women's equality, what about the fact that women vote today um, in large numbers, they vote even more than men, and they elect the legislatures that have done these things, and there are many pro-choice women. If it's a liberty argument, you don't put it to a vote. That's the quote you loved from um, Robert Jackson. You know, certain things in the Bill of Rights depend on no vote. But if it's an equality argument, it's a little awkward for a male-dominated Supreme Court to say, we're actually going to disregard what, what many women, pro-life women, believe in the here and now. So I've tried to make the strong equality argument. I've tried to show you what some of the, the um, uh, objections to it might be. In our next episode, Andy, I'm going to tell you a wholly different or related line of um, analysis um, that, that the liberals could put forth to try to create a broad coalition of the middle to try to, to steal over, to win back um, Amy Coney Barrett um, and Brett Kavanaugh, who reportedly are, are uh, at this point on board with the um, Alito draft. Um, but ooh, would it be possible to create a broad coalition of the, of the middle with Democrat and Republican appointees all on board so that Alito's opinion actually just becomes a concurrence or something like that or partial dissent of, of three justices? Well, that would require very clever legal analysis and kind of small group politicking on the part of Stephen Breyer, uh, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, um, uh, John Roberts. I actually think there's a possible thing that they can do, and we'll share it with folks in the next episode. Okay, look forward to it. And thank you again to all of our, our new listeners. We hope you'll stick with us.